Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, please take it and turn to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Let me take this opportunity to say a word of thanks to so many of you that have been praying for my family. As many of you know, my grandmother passed away uh, last week and we got to drive it to Tennessee. The boys and I did and I got to do her funeral. It was a little different in this COVID-19 era in which we're living, but it was nevertheless a great celebration of her life and her legacy and the Savior who called her home. So thank you for praying for us. Thank you for encouraging us. Let me also remind you parents that in just one minute, 1055, over at our FM Kids page, we will be beginning the countdown to launch our kids' message this morning. This is an opportunity to invest in your children, parents. And so if you have another device, a phone or a tablet, you can grab that and open it up to the FM Kids page in just a minute. We'll start the countdown and then at 11, uh, that's when that formally will begin. So please parents, make plans to be be a part of that and take advantage of that. If you're just joining us, please take a moment and comment. We would love to know that you're here. Tell us that you're watching. Tell tell us how many are watching with you and uh, share this to your personal Facebook page. This is a great opportunity for you to invest in the people that are gonna watch your page and and scroll through a feed and see a a message that's gonna give them hope in this era. So please take this opportunity and share that to your Facebook page and let us know that you're here by commenting. Jonah chapter three is where we're gonna be learning this morning about the love of God. Jonah chapter three is where Jonah, uh, through his experience and through what God is doing, really unpacks for us the beauty and the splendor of the love of God. If you've got your Bible open to Jonah three, would you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word in Jonah chapter three, starting in verse one. Jonah three, verse one, we read these words. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth and sat in ashes. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. Verse 10, God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened with them, threatened them with. And he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. This is God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that as we open your word this morning, that you would speak. God, we pray that you would remove distraction and you would help us 
fix our minds and our hearts on what you have to say to us today. God, we pray that as you speak, we would not just be hearers, but doers of your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. In 1967, the world-famous Beatles released a song called All You Need Is Love. I'm sure many of you have heard that song or heard it on the radio at different points in your life. The song is indeed about the idea of love and that if you have love, you have everything you need. I looked at the lyrics last night, I counted. The word love is mentioned 55 times in that song. And while the word love is something that we hear in music and in our culture, I, I'm, I'm convinced that there's a lot of confusion about what the word love actually means. See, biblically speaking, love is setting your affections on a person or a thing. God's love is God choosing, setting his affections on a person or a thing. We've been watching through the book of Jonah, as God has called Jonah to go preach to his enemies. We've seen Jonah disobey, and we've seen God discipline Jonah. Now that God, Jonah is coming out of the discipline of the Lord, still not fully understanding his grace, but nevertheless coming out of that discipline, he's ready now to go and preach to his enemies. But as Jonah does that in chapter 3, what we're going to see is a beautiful display of the love of God. We're going to see the love of God unpacked in all its splendor and wonder and beauty today. And the reason I want you to listen today is because in this crazy season of being isolated and away from people, in this crazy season where it feels like every hour something is changing, we need something we can anchor our souls into that's not going to change And what I want to show you this morning is that you, you can anchor your soul. You can rest your heart in the love of God. That God's love is sure and strong and is not going to change. So here's the idea that I want to really drive home in our time together this morning. Because of the indescribable beauty of God's love, anchor yourself in it because of the wonder and the beauty and the splendor and the surety of God's love. Take the root of your heart down deep into the love of God and let that be where you find your security in this very unsecure and unstable and uncertain season in which we're living. I want to show you four dimensions to the indescribable beauty of the love of God. And if you're home, I want you to take notes with us, write these ideas down. It'll help you track along even as you're in your living room around your kitchen table. Number one, notice that you and I should anchor in God's pursuing love. Notice that we should anchor in God's pursuing love. Now that pursuing love shows up In four words we see in this passage. First, notice the timing of God's pursuing love. Notice the timing of it. Look in your Bibles at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. I think one of the most beautiful phrases in the entire book of Jonah is the phrase, a second time. 
time that God's message and his patience with Jonah leads him to come to him a second time. Remember the timing of this. Jonah's just come out of disobedience and the discipline of the Lord. He's just come out of not fully understanding the grace of God. He's still pridefully asserting his own superiority to others. And yet, what you don't see God doing is rubbing Jonah's face in his failure. You even don't see God, you don't even see God threatening Jonah. Jonah, if you don't do this, I'm going to put you back in the belly of a fish. Instead, what you see is the grace of God in the timing with which God pursues Jonah. He pursues him even after this disobedience and discipline and misunderstanding. Let me tell you what that tells us. God is not dealing with Jonah based on his performance. God is dealing with Jonah based on his love for him. If you want to anchor yourself in something that's not going to change, know that God's love for you and for me is not based on our performance or our behavior. God's love for us is based on his kindness and grace. Second word that I want you to notice here about the pursuing love of God is not just the timing of it, but the firmness of God's pursuing love. Write that down, the firmness of it. There are three commands in the verse two, all joined together, all bunched up together. He says, get up, go, and preach. These commands are not suggestions. They are rather firm commands God gives him that are orders that are meant to be followed. But one of the things that God makes clear is that he doesn't tell Jonah exactly what he's to say yet. He just tells him to go. He says, go, and I'll tell you what to say when you get there. In other words, what God is saying to Jonah is, Jonah, obey what I'm telling you to do now. And once you've obeyed that, I'll show you what you need to do next. This is an important principle for you and me today, because oftentimes, if you're like me, you want all the steps that God's going to give us. God, I just don't want A and B. I want C, D, E, F, G. I want all the steps. But so often what God does in my life and in your life is he says, Spencer, obey the step that I've given you right now. Do what I'm telling you to do right now, and I'll show you what the next step is once you've obeyed the current step you're on. Can I tell you that every single one of us have a step we're supposed to be taking right now, even in the midst of this crazy season? For some of us, that looks like being a faithful husband and wife. For others of us, it looks like being a faithful parent to the children that we've been given. Still for others, it looks like just being a faithful servant of the Lord that's encouraging people even through these online mediums we have like Facebook. But all of us have a step we're to take right now. I don't know what the future is going to hold with coronavirus and all that's swirling around that. But I do know there's a faithful step we're called to take right now as God's pursuing us. But third, notice also the substance of pursuing love, the timing, the firmness. But third, write down this word, the substance of pursuing love. He says, Jonah, go, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. The substance of the pursuing love that Jonah is to present is God is both the judge, the one who's evaluating the people of Nineveh, but he's also the savior, Remember from chapter one, God said that their evil had come up before him. Jonah is to go and show the people of Nineveh that they are accountable to God. 
But simultaneously, not only is God the one to whom they are accountable, God is the only one who can save them. In other words, the substance of pursuing love is both a problem and a solution, both who have their source in God Almighty. But fourthly and finally, notice the result of pursuing love. The timing, the firmness, the substance, but write this word down, the result of pursuing love. Verse 3, Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. That phrase, according to the Lord's command, means that Jonah was doing more than just obeying God outwardly, but that he had obeyed God inwardly. There was a submission and humility in Jonah's life that showed up in his attitude changing before the Lord. The discipline of God had worked in his life in such a way that now he was fully surrendered to what God was telling him to do. Here's the point I want to make to you. We have a God who never gives up on his children. In this pursuing love God has for Jonah and the people of Nineveh, what this shows us is God never, ever stops pursuing his sons and his daughters. Listen to what Paul said about this in Philippians 1.6. He said, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The promise you and I have to hold on to about the love of God is that he never, no, never stops pursuing us. Think about the image of the father in the parable Jesus told of the prodigal son. You remember that story where the son asks for a share of inheritance, communicating that he'd rather his father be dead. He goes into a faraway country, blows all the money, realizes he has to come back in order to survive. And when he's coming back with his tail between his legs, the father sees him from a long way off and folds his arms and furrows his brow. Actually, that's not what the story says. The story says that when the son was far away off and the father saw him, that the father runs to his son. He runs after his child, his disobedient, wayward child. He runs after him. And this is a picture of the love of God in your life and in my life if we know Jesus. If you know Jesus Christ, you can count on the fact that even in this season, God is pursuing you. God's running after you. Even in moments of discouragement and despondency and frustration, God's running after you. Can I tell you what that means? What that means is that we as believers more than anyone else should be people of hope. We should be people who when we're at the grocery store or posting things online or going through our days are people who are saying, yeah, this is tough and this is hard, but I believe God's still on the move. I believe God's pursuing love is still working and moving in this world, maybe in ways I can't even see. Anchor yourself in the hope that we have in the pursuing love of God. Let me make a practical suggestion about how you can do that. If you've got the news on all day long in your home, stop. Turn it off. Do not 
let the news cycle run all day in your home. Let me tell you why that's true, why that's important. Because what the news cycle is doing is anchoring you in panic and fear. What they are selling in a 24-hour news cycle is not encouraging uplifting stories. What they're selling you is death and destruction and fear because they know that's what pulls people in. Turn off the news. Anchor yourself in the pursuing love of Jesus Christ. One of the ways you can do that is by being a conduit for that pursuing love. My grand who passed away, one of the great joys we had was getting notes and letters from people who'd been impacted by her life. My grand and my papa, they taught fifth and sixth grade Sunday school for 30 or 40 years, decades of teaching boys and girls about Jesus. And one of the most precious things we got in the mail was a note from a gal in one of the churches they had served in who said, you know, your mother, your grandmother, my grand, was instrumental in my life in seeing me come to know Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. And I still remember the way she taught me about Jesus. One of the ways you experience the pursuing love of God is by being a conduit for that love. Email people, text people, call people. Use your Facebook platform as a way of loving people and encouraging people. Use it as a way for communicating that God is still moving and working in this world. Number two, not only should we anchor ourselves in God's pursuing love, we should also anchor ourselves in God's confronting love. God's confronting love. Notice the first word that describes this conversation, this uh, confrontation is immediate. Write that down. There's an immediate confrontation. Second half of verse three into verse four. Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. And Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. The very first day, Jonah begins speaking about the problem that the people of Nineveh are facing. But not only is this immediate in its confrontation, also notice that it's an urgent confrontation. Write that word down. It's an urgent confrontation. Jonah says, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. The time of 40 is is a kind of special time in the Bible that's usually associated with a period of time for transformation. A period of time to really reflect and to purge, and to repent. Think about the 40 years in the desert the children of Israel spent getting ready to go into the promised land. Jonah is saying that there's an urgent way that God is confronting them. There's a time limit here. There's a clock that's been set, and the people of Nineveh better listen and pay attention. But third, the third word that describes this confrontation is dire. It's not just an immediate and urgent confrontation. It's a dire confrontation. The Bible says that in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Some of your translations might say overthrown or turned upside down. This is the language that's reminiscent of what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah when he rained fire and brimstone and destroyed it once for all. But this word demolished also carries the connotation of the idea of change. 
You could also understand this word as change. In other words, what God is saying to the people of Nineveh is in 40 days, either you're going to be destroyed and demolished or you're going to move into being a thriving, flourishing place again. There's a crossroads the people of Nineveh are faced with and that's the confrontation God brings to us. Here's the point for you and for me today. God's love always includes a confrontation about the seriousness of our sin. The love of God doesn't begin with good news. The love of God always begins with bad news. It begins with a clear picture of the problem you and I have before God. The tool that God uses throughout the scriptures to bring that reality to bear is the law. The Ten Commandments are meant to show us that we don't measure up. The Ten Commandments are meant to act like a mirror that shows us that we are prideful, lustful, jealous people who deserve to be punished for our sins. You know, several weeks ago when we were still in school, my kids had crazy hair day at school. And uh, Shelly is a great mom, and so she had lined up all these different kind of crazy hairsprays and colors and different things. And so she worked with each individual kid to get their hair just as crazy as we possibly could get it. They were green and blue and pink. And, and there's that critical moment where after working with them and doing things that they want to run to the mirror and see how crazy it really looks, right? And so one by one, each of my kids would get their hair done and then they would run to the mirror and I would go watch them when their eyes would light up and that mirror would show them how insane their hair really looked for that special day. Well, what I want you to know is the law is a lot like that mirror. What the law does is it shows us our spiritual insanity. It shows us in clear kind of vivid imagery that we don't measure up to God's perfect standard. It shows us, it confronts us with the seriousness of our problem. In this season, we have got to see our sin for what it is. Our sin is not something that we should play with or be entertained by. Our sin is not something we should compare away or make excuses for. But our sin should be something that we are clearly seeing for what it is, deadly to our souls. You know, one of the great gifts God's given us in this season is an opportunity to slow down and do some honest reflection about sin in our lives. One of the opportunities you've been given right now, in this time when you've got more time in your hands maybe than you've ever had in your life, is to do some careful reflection about your sin. You know, I'm so thankful, right? Because right now in our church, there's a growing, a small but growing movement of discipleship that's happening real community that's happening in our body right now. And part of which that's happening is through people confessing their sin to one another. Can I tell you one of the things that we should be doing right now in this season is getting open and honest about our sin with our families and our friends. Being transparent about that. You know what James says happens when we get open and honest about our sin? When we confess our sins to one another, we experience the healing of God. Because when I bring my sin into the light and I see it for what it is, I experience the reality of God's grace afresh and anew. 
when I confess my sin and I identify it for what it is and how deadly it is, I'm living in reality and in the truth of God's word. And I'm living in a posture of humility. And what the Bible clearly tells us is that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Parents, one of the things that we've got to be doing is as good students of our children, helping them see what their greatest sin struggle is. Parents, are you, are you not just reprimanding your children? Are you doing more than just getting frustrated with them? Are you actually helping them interpret and understand what their sin really is? Right now in the Plumlee household, we're talking a lot about our words and how our words can hurt other people. And we're talking a lot about taking responsibility when we do something wrong. Parents, are you taking those opportunities to confront sin in the lives of your kids? We should anchor ourselves not only in God's pursuing love, but also in God's confronting love. Third, we should also anchor ourselves in God's convicting love. God's convicting love. A couple of words that describe how the people of Nineveh respond to this confrontation is they're convicted, number one, about their faith. Their faith, write that word down, conviction of faith. Look at verse five. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. They believed God. This is more than just believing the message. They believed in the one who was going to bring about their destruction. They didn't believe Jonah. It says they believed in the person of God. This response is incredible because they're turning from their violence and evil and believing and trusting in God. There's also a conviction of their pride, a conviction of pride. The Bible says in very vivid details that they humbled themselves. They took on sackcloth. If you read verse six, it says, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe and put on sackcloth as well. And he sat in ashes. These are descriptors for people who are in a position of mourning. It's so serious. It's as if somebody has died in every single household in Nineveh and they're responding in a posture of humility. But there's also a conviction of their hope. There's a conviction that speaks and leads them to hope. Look at the order of the king in verse 7, 8, and 9. He says, By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd, or flock has to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil way and from his wrongdoing. Notice the hope here in verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. They rightly identify God's anger as burning. They rightly call for a turning from violence and evil and say, let's hope that God will be merciful to us. The significance of this is seen in the fact that the Assyrians were famously violent people. They were known for their brutality. They impaled people and found new ways of torturing their defeated foes. And yet the king and his nobles are saying, turn from those things and let's pray that God will deliver us from his wrath and justice. But the last word I want you to see here is not just that this was a conviction of faith or pride or hope. I do want you to notice that I believe this passage shows that the people of Nineveh were convicted out of convenience. Convenience. 
Now, I want everybody to listen carefully because I'm about to take a position that's a little controversial about this passage, but I'm going to back it up. I told Shelly what I thought about this last night, and she said, well, you've got to defend that because a lot of people aren't used to hearing this. But I don't believe what we're seeing in this passage is mass conversion of the people of Nineveh. I don't believe we're seeing these people being converted in the same way that we saw the sailors being converted in chapter 1. Let me give you three reasons why that's the case, okay? Number one, notice the timing of this. They're asking for God to help them so that they can get something from him. They want something from God. They want him to not destroy them, and so they're turning from their sin. Remember, the sailors repented and trusted the Lord after the storm had already left. In other words, what we're seeing here is kind of a foxhole conversion. They're asking God to help them in the midst of trouble and difficulty. Secondly, understand that later, these same Assyrians are going to be the ones that go right back to their violence, go right back to their aggression, and they actually kill, destroy, and take into captivity the nation of Israel. This conversion, so and so forth, that we see here is not really a conversion, I believe, because in part, just years later, they're right back to what they were doing previously. But the third reason I'm not convinced this is mass conversion And the most important reason is because we do not see the word Lord referenced anywhere in their turning to God. If you notice in your Bibles, they talk about turning to God. This is the word Elohim. It's the idea of a general position of deity. Whereas the sailors, when they repented, were repenting to Yahweh, turning to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who redeemed his people out of Egypt. The reason I believe this is so critical for you and me today is because we have a lot of talk going on in our culture about God, but very little talk about Jesus. The problem with just general talk about God is most people fill in the gaps about God with the God that's made in their own image. But when you talk about Jesus When you talk about his death, burial, and resurrection for our sins, you don't have this vague conception of God. You have a God who's holy and just and merciful and kind and who is king and Lord over all. Let me encourage you in this season, not just to talk about God in a general way, but to talk about Jesus as your Lord and Savior who can redeem you from your sins. You see, in a similar way, we are called to go. We're called to be people who are out there communicating the message and truth of the gospel. In fact, several weeks ago, we challenged you to identify one person in your life who you were going to share Christ with this year. The challenge was, who's your one? Who's that one person in your life who you're sharing with? Are you still praying for that person? Are you still thinking about them and looking for ways to share with them, even in this crazy season? You know, it might be easy in this season just to put that on pause or put that on hold. But can I tell you, in the season we have more time than ever, one of the best things you can be doing is praying for that person. Don't stop praying for them and don't stop looking for opportunities, not just to tell them to turn to God, but to tell them to turn to Jesus Christ who can save them from their sins. Fourthly and finally, with this we're done, we should anchor ourselves not just in God's pursuing confronting and convicting love, but we should also anchor ourselves in God's merciful love. His merciful love. 
Notice three words that describe God's mercy in this passage. Look at verse 10. It says, God saw their actions that they had turned from their evil ways. Notice this merciful vision. Write that word down, merciful vision. God sees them and looks at them with mercy and compassion. This is the same kind of way God looked at the children of Israel when they were in Egypt and in their bondage and under slavery. But also notice this merciful verdict. Write that second word down. Write the word verdict down. Merciful verdict. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with. The verdict changes. Now, now we need to have some precision and nuance here because most of your Bibles will say that God relented or he regretted or he repented. And one of the things we want to quickly acknowledge as we read our Bibles is that there are limits to our language as humans in its ability to describe who God is. We have a limit in our ability with our language as humans to describe the divine. So you'll remember in the Garden of Eden when the Bible says that God walked through the garden on the cool of the day. What that doesn't mean is that God has feet or toenails or legs. God is spirit. He doesn't have a body. It's an attempt with human language to describe God and all that he is. In the same way, what we read when we read the word relent is not that God was, had made a mistake or that he was sorry in the way that you and I would apologize for something, but that God was responding to the actions of people in this world. You see, God's sovereignty and his plan over all things includes the response of human beings to his word. What we're seeing here is not God making a mistake. What we're seeing is God giving them mercy. We see a merciful vision. We see a merciful verdict. But we also see a merciful result. Look at the last phrase in verse 10. And he did not do it. God's will comes to pass. And here's what happens in this passage. God doesn't give them grace, but he does give them mercy. Let me make a distinction between the words I'm using here, mercy and grace. Mercy means God didn't give them wrath and punishment. But what this passage doesn't teach, it doesn't teach that God gave them covenantal kindness and adoption as sons and daughters. The good news for you and for me is that God's mercy is more, as we were saying about a moment ago, God not only gives us mercy in this kind of traditional sense, he also gives us grace. The reason you can anchor yourself in the love of God this morning amidst this trying time is God not only doesn't give you what you deserve in wrath and justice, he also gives you kindness and adoption and grace. Imagine for a moment if we were somehow to miraculously be able to rescue the perpetrators of the terrorism on 9 11. I'll never forget watching those planes fly into those buildings, sitting in my class there in college as I was in managerial accounting. But imagine that somehow we were able to capture those guys. They fell out of the planes. We were able to bring them to trial. And the world's outcry to punish these perpetrators of these horrible crimes would be overwhelming. But can you imagine what would happen 
if a judge said, I'm going not to punish you, instead of giving you the death penalty, we're going to give that to an innocent substitute. Well, of course, the outcry from the world would be so overwhelming, that judge would probably have to run for his life because he would be threatened on a daily, hourly, probably minute by minute basis for not carrying out justice on these perpetrators. But can you imagine for a moment if that judge not only withheld punishing these people, but went a step further and said, not only am I going to give your punishment to somebody else, I'm also going to adopt you. I'm going to bring you into my family and I'm going to take care of you and provide for you and help you. Well, at that point, the move would be from trying to kill this judge to probably trying to have him declared insane, right? The insanity of not punishing these terrorists for what they did, and then the insanity of welcoming them into your family. How could you do that to such rebellious, vile human beings who committed such horrible acts? It's insane. But listen, that's the insanity of God's love for you. Because not only does God give you mercy, and that he gives Jesus Christ on that cross the punishment and the wrath that you and I should have been given, he also, by faith and repentance, brings us into his family and says, you are now my son and my daughter, and I'll never leave you or forsake you. Do you see the splendor and beauty of the love of God? Do you see that even amidst this terribly crazy time in which we're in, that you can anchor yourself in something that's indescribably beautiful and know that you are safe and secure and whole? If you're watching this and you're a believer, my prayer is, is that you would once again, just this morning, bask in the beauty of God's love. And because you are loved, because you are so loved that you would love the people that are around you. That we'd be quick to forgive each other. That we'd be quick to assume the best of one another. That we'd be quick to love one another in the season when frankly we can be pretty frustrated with each other and be cruel and be mean as we're cooped up. I pray, church, that the love of God would so overflow into your life that you would love the people around you with the same kind of love you've been given. But there may be others of you here today who've never experienced the love of God. You've never tasted and seen how good the Lord is to you. The reality is, as I mentioned a moment ago, that the love of God starts with recognizing you have a problem. What the love of God teaches us is that every one of us deserve not God's kindness, but we deserve God's wrath and his punishment. Every one of us have lied. We've stolen. We've looked at other people with lust or pride in our hearts. And because we've done those things, every one of us had entered a state called brokenness. We're broken. We try to fill that brokenness with all kinds of things in our lives, with money, with drugs, with status, with power. But none of those things can fill the void that we have in our souls. So what the Bible says is that God made a way out of our brokenness, out of our sin. And he sent Jesus Christ to die for you, to take that punishment, to take what you and I should have been given, 
And when Jesus Christ rises again three days later, he looks at you and me and says, you can be forgiven if you turn from your sin and trust him. You see, when I repent of my sin, when I turn from that and trust him, he not only withholds his wrath, he also gives me his kindness. He adopts me as his son and his daughter and puts me in a path toward recovery. If you're here today and you've never experienced that love, I'd like you to pray with me right now. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're here today and you've never experienced that kind of love, that mercy and grace and kindness, you can pray something like this. God, I know that I'm a sinner. God, I know that I have rebelled against you and that I've lied and stolen. I've worshiped false things. And God, I know that because I've done those things, I deserve to be punished. But God, right now, I turn from my sin and I trust Jesus Christ. I believe that he died for me, that he took my punishment. And I believe he rose again to give me new life. Right now, Jesus, I give you my life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.